You're listening to The Perth Property Show, Australia's only weekly property podcast by West Australian experts for West Australian listeners. Catch your latest episode every Monday at 7am. G'day guys, welcome to another episode of The Perth Property Show. I'm your host, Trent Fleskins. And just remember, if you've got any questions or comments, please leave them on the Facebook page or perthpropertyshow.com.au. Today's a really fun topic. We're going to be talking about this question. Have we seen the last of Australia's everyday property mogul? And for this fun conversation, we've got Aaron D. Camillion from Surrey Road Finance again. Thanks for coming in, Aaron. Pleasure, Trent. Thanks for having us. Mate, I've got you in especially because for me, this question is a finance question. You see those guys on the front of the newspaper or the magazine. He's on 90K a year, the median sort of price, but he's got 28 properties. How did he do that? It's a, it's a, it's a really interesting story to read. And back in the day, it was because essentially the tap never turned off in terms of finance. He was buying 90, 95% loans left, yep. right and center. As long as the income on the rent covered it, he could just keep buying and buying and buying, paying in their mire and now he's got 28 properties. Does it mean he's rich? Probably not. No. Probably means his life's very complicated. But now it's, it's not happening, is it? Things have changed. It's a lot harder and we're seeing less cases of people just fluking it on a, on a couple of good properties and riding a a property wave. So, mm. and you know, 10, 12 years ago in Perth, there was plenty of people who considered themselves property experts just because they happened upon a, a good property yep. uh, or two and rode a wave that everyone else rode as well. Especially in the Pilbara, I guess, in yeah, Western or, Australia. That's the, that's the West Australian example. It is. And what went up certainly came down. Yeah. So that was, that was a really interesting exercise for all of us to be on that. But I think now you need to be much more strategic about what you do. You ca- you're not just going to chance your arm and come and do a couple of good properties and ride a wave like you used to. Yep. Uh, lending's more difficult than market's tighter. So planning, planning, planning. That's the number one thing for me, I think. It's finance. It's a, it's a lending environment. It used to be a situation where as long as the rent, the proposed rent covered the proposed mortgage, the bank said, yep, cool, let's keep going. Yep. Property 9, 10, 11, 12, 13... Now, the lending, and we've spoken about it in other episodes, but the lending situation is so stringent and tight now that even people on really strong wages who have got $150,000 a year, you've got two or three investment properties with a total lending of not much more than a million dollars, these people are struggling to get their fourth property. That's it. Yeah, you're going to struggle to find it. The way banks treat other financial institution debt now is uh, is fairly heavy. So they're now doubling the repayments in some instances, uh, which means you just can't borrow for that fourth or fifth property like you used to. So where you're getting stuck now is at two or three. Uh, well, not stuck, but that's that's where you're ending up. The average you, you, for most of us who have got pretty good wages, you're not doing more money more than you know three or four max sort of investments yep. anymore. Yeah, so I guess then you've got to ask yourself, is that the best way to invest your, your money in property? Mm. Do you start looking at other um, shorter-term projects, some retaining splits, retaining builds potentially, mm. um, or a small development or something where you're, you're liquidating your cash and moving into a different project quicker rather than a long-term hold uh, in every instance? Yeah, it used to be, uh, I guess, an ideology, things that we would look up to people on as how many houses do you have. That, mean, yep. that would sort of be a directive of how rich you are maybe. But now... Uh, you know, again, and it could have always been that guy who had 10 properties and $20,000 equity or yep. negative equity, right? Yep. And you've got one guy who's got a $1 million house paid off. That was obviously a case. But now it's not going to be reality more where you can have 10, 11, 12 properties. And therefore, that idea of accumulating properties, it's just not a strategy anymore. It's its a lot harder. It's a, it's some, it's it would take a, a lot longer to do it. Yeah, it's still a strategy for some, but it is a lot harder because the lending is so much more difficult now to get to those other properties. So, so that passive investment strategy, 
in my opinion, because of the lending environment, needs to be balanced off by what is more risky, but essentially what is the only solution I see these days in active development strategies. Yeah, I mean, even looking at, uh, you'd have to question how passive some things are. When you when you buy an investment property, you know, you'll drop your stamp duty to, to kick off with. You might yep. pay a buyer's agent fee, for example, if yep. you're using a buyer's agent. But then straight away, you'll be up for a hot water system. The gutters will leak. The taps will be leaking. The ceiling will collapse. Something will happen, which means you get your hand in your pocket for the first six months at least, mm. repairing or preparing or you know, finding tenants and that sort of thing. And so, then you're negatively geared straight away. You're negatively geared and as we know, negative gearing only works if you're going to get significant capital appreciation on the property. So yeah. is that passive? It's not that passive anyway. Yeah. Could you be spending your time or that time that you otherwise allocated to that to maybe a little something a little bit more interesting? Manufacturing wealth. The, the whole point, of, in my opinion, with, with passive investment, your hands are tight. You are sitting on the sidelines hoping that that one decision you made at some point in the past was a good decision and will continue to be a good decision so that you don't have to do anything or more much and that will just grow in value. I mean, in today's market, it's clearly not been happening for the market reasons, but with the lending environment now, no one's going to retire on three or four passive investments. No, not unless uh, no, not unless something crazy happens. So yeah, that's, yeah. That's so not, we need to have different anymore. strategies, that's don't right. we? That's right, yeah. And with these properties, it's again, we come back to it. You, you've got to plan before the acquisition for what your long-term goal is for that property. Mm. So if it is to just keep it as a passive investment, then let's plan for that. It better be a bloody good one. It, it would want to be a really good property, yeah. yeah. So don't chance your arm by jumping into it by yourself. Mm. Engage an advisor to help you through that process. Yeah. Uh, at the very least, for the information at the start. You know. Yep. Let's talk then. If we're both in agreement that there should at least be with those three or four properties a mix now of active developments. Yep. Why are we doing that? What is, what is it affording us? Well, I guess from one point of view, you're looking at liquidity. So a buy and hold strategy means your funds are tied up with that property and you can only really use the upside equity if there is if any. If there is some, yeah. Yeah. So I guess if you're looking at short-term projects, you can release funds and pay down some debt and get into other projects. Well, you're manufacturing equity right. in that situation, aren't you, right? The whole point of doing a retain and split or a triplex or whatnot is you're not waiting beholden to the market for that extra hundred, dollars $200,000 of equity to go and securitize your next property. Yep. You're making it right then and there. That's the whole point. And whilst you still might not be able to service another loan, you're paying down your current loans which may allow you to get that next property. Yeah, that's right. And it certainly gives you a lot more flexibility. So you can you can sit on your hands if you need to for a period, which you can't do if you're holding a property. If you're holding a property, those costs are yours. Mm. There's no escaping that. But yeah. you can sit out if you need to. And you know, a good buyer's agent is one who sometimes tells a client to not buy anything. Yeah, 100%. Uh, that's a measure of a good buyer's agent. Yep. And even when we do do this active development, let's say we've done one, you do want it to be one that's obviously going to have great passive returns as well in the future. It's not just something where you're going to make 100K, but it's in an area that's really not going anywhere. Uh, you want it to be one that's going to have passive returns. Or if you're in that situation where you've done that active development, you then have to ask yourself anyway, over the next two or three years, if I look, my, my I can't get any more debt, I'm all maxed out on my servicing. In the next two or three years, which is the time it would take to do another active development, do I think this passive hold now, which is what it is now, yep. is going to make me as much or more as the costs and the profit of selling it and getting another active development going. Yeah, so, so two points in that. You need to plan for those outcomes and then you need to work out what you're going to do with either, either of those or you know, if there's multiple outcomes, work out what your plan is then. So you need to crystallize that as much as possible before you actually execute a strategy. So for me, I think a good roundup to that is we've moved away from allocating our savings, our equity to the most efficient places the most profitable places. It's now about understanding what our max debt capacity is going to be for our salary. We all make a certain amount of money based on what we like doing for 50 hours a week. Understanding what that capacity is and then allocating that debt coverage to the most profitable 
investments, active or passive, yep. in that bucket. A- a- and most suitable to your requirements as well. Exactly right. So, yeah. yeah. I guess the only the only other thing we can add to that is that when we are looking at multiple properties, it's an old rule, but where, where we can, we'll split the lenders. We won't have all the investment properties with one lender. We'll actually use individual lenders just to keep the asset allocation away from one lender. Yep. And it means you can treat those assets individually without having to revalue the other ones every time you change the loans. Well, that gives you flexibility and agility, does, doesn't it? Really you don't does. want to be wondering, look, look, it's, the market's been okay. Do I have to get that first investment property valued again? And if so, is it even worth looking into buying the next property? If you know that you've got the equity sitting there from a savings account or something like that to buy that next one and you've got the debt available to buy the next one, it's much better to go, yep, that's separate. I'm not going to have any questions asked of the rest of my portfolio. Yep. Whether it's good or you know, or it's not as good, you're not, you're not sure, but just have that flexibility to yep. move. Is, hey. That's a really good point. Yep, and you're just raising a deposit and cost loan against that existing equity, so it's as tax deductible as it ever was, but it just frees you up with the properties and doesn't leave the bank holding all the, all the cards. So I guess that cross-securitization, cross-collateralization, yep trying to stay away from that as yeah. much as we can yeah there are instances where we will use it to, to get a rate down or something but by and large as a general rule we'll try and split the lenders so some people would ask then look if we've got this max level of debt that we can get for our income how do we make it more how do you know if we're not getting a promotion are we always gonna be stuck at that point and some people will say well how about i go in with my brother we put it together and and now we can afford to do more things. Is that, I mean, there, there's pros and cons to that? Or pros is- and cons, yeah. I mean, it does, having having an additional income does increase your borrowing capacity. Obviously, that, that mm. helps. Uh, it does make you liable for that full debt, though, if you're looking to do something individually later on. So, mm. again, you got you want to be really clear about what the project is. What's the plan? Yeah, what's the plan? How long is it going to go for? Because uh, it will tie up your serviceability. But if it's a short-term project and you need the increased borrowing power for you and your brother, in your example, to, to execute a project, then by all means. And if it's a, a get out at the end of that project, then you're back to where you were before. It probably wants to be, doesn't it? Yeah, a long-term hold, it's really going to tie up your borrowing for, while it's there. So there's not much else you can do. And let's flesh that out. Let's say you've got a $600,000 house that you couldn't afford to buy yourself. You've gone in with your brother. Yep. You had a $480,000 loan. That's an 80% loan. Now, whilst you might only be paying half of that loan off, so $240,000 each, yep. the bank, let's confirm, the bank looks at that and goes, no, you're liable for all 480. So whilst you're only getting the benefit of the income or the, uh, the or equity the growth yep. of, of half of it, yep. you're being assessed against double what you think it is, double that liability. Yeah, and a common a common add-on to that is if that's your investment property that you hold with your brother, you might have owner-occupied debt that your bank has raised the rate on. Mm. You now no longer qualify to apply to refinance that or even with your existing lender Yeah, because you've got the additional investment borrowing. So yeah. you want to make sure if you do a joint venture like that or, or a joint borrow, you want to make sure that you're fully aware of the implications that it has on, on anything that you've got coming down the line from a lending point of view. And what about JVs? A JV is something that we want to be getting involved in at the moment? Yeah, with a very cautiously. Mm. I think you want to make sure the JV works for you. It's very easy for a JV to come unstuck. You want to know your partner. You want to know your partner. You want to set clear boundaries, have a clear, uh, a clear set of guidelines for how you're going to execute uh, the joint venture. Yep. Uh, including you know, even basic things like decision-making on, on 50-50 things. Who's going to make the call? You want to make sure that's and it's worth sitting down it's with a apparently lawyer. Apparently, needs yeah. What I was just going to ask. It, it sounds like we definitely need a, a legally written JV agreement. And everyone says, oh yeah, but it's with my brother. I'm like, that's particularly the case. Mm. If it's a family member or a close friend, then you definitely even more so. You want to have that that agreement drawn up so that it can just be business. The, the family stuff stays on a Sunday afternoon at the, t- at the table. 
and then the business is as per what we agreed on paper. A hundred percent. And a, a litigator friend of mine deals with this constantly. He says this, the most simple agreement can be drawn up and it will eliminate ongoing, enduring family feuds for, for years. Aaron, thanks again for your time. We'll have you in soon. Pleasure. Thanks, Trent. Now, for today's suburb spotlight, we have one of Perth Real Estate's mainstay names. It's the Kelly team's leader these days. It's Devin Kelly. Mr. Belmont, you've been so for a long time. Devin, thanks for coming into the studio. Thanks, Trent. Uh, happy to be here. Mate, let's quickly just talk about, and I don't normally do this, but I want to in this case, let's quickly talk about Laurie Kelly Real Estate. Uh, we normally don't obviously spruik businesses and whatnot, but I, I just love the idea of a family business that spanned three generations. What a great story. Yeah, we've been in the area since 1971. Uh, Dad started it back then, and over the years we've had uh, Faye Kelly, Kim Finlay, myself. Now we've got Daniel Kelly in the business. So, yeah, three generations at the moment. That's fantastic. And I, think, I just think that's a great story for, for the industry to know that you, know, you can have that family touch and still obviously be successful over sustained generational periods of time. And obviously, that means the brand is very well recognised in the area. Yes, well, we we sell between 100 and 150 properties a year in the area. Uh, we're not a big business, but we have got 600 rentals, which keeps us uh, busy. Talking about your history, let's talk about the history of Belmont as a suburb. And let's go right back to the start when people were subdividing farmland. Okay, well, that was your late 1800s. Um, it was mainly farmland running from the airport down to the river. Mainly a lot of full horse people with the Belmont Nascot Racecourse. And then in the late 60s, it was subdivided and Dad came out of a company called General Agency and used to do all the selling out in Belmont for the house and land packages and it evolved from there. Wow, house and land packages in Belmont. That, that is years ago. The average uh, block size, I think, was about 900 to 1,000 square metres. What were they selling for? Oh, I think there was something like 8,000. Yeah, wow. Um, back <laughs> in the day. You can't even get a kitchen for $8,000 these no, days. No, but we're still selling a lot of homes for people that originally bought uh, one-owner homes. Yep. Uh, I sold one the other day, actually, and that went for four ninety. Well, I guess you see that whole generation now where there would be people who uh, you know, built their house and land package back then and they've moved on to a, you know, a downsize or they've passed away and, and that was a, a single ownership home for decades. Oh, it was a, it's a very ageing area. Um, I remember going to school, Kudo High School, and there was about 1,200 kids at the school. It's a big school. And there was kids everywhere all throughout the suburb. There was Belmont High and Kudo High. There was probably 3,000 high school students running around the city of Belmont, so it was busy times. These days, as obviously a big member of, of the Belmont community, you would be watching and, and witnessing a changing of guard in terms of age, but also culture in the area. How, how has it changed in that time from when you were younger to the demographics of Belmont these days? Back when I was younger, it was mainly working class families, a lot of employment out at the Qdale freight yards, out at the airport. Now it's sort of changed more to second home buyers, uh, working closer to the city, business, offices. Uh, a lot of uh, Asian buyers coming into the market in Belmont at the moment. They've discovered the location between the airport and the city is very lucrative for them. And do you think that the Graham Farmer Freeway, the tunnel and whatnot, do you think that opened up Belmont to people who work in the city? Oh, that that opened it up tremendously um, back when uh, Rivervale was a uh, Homes West area. 
Uh, I remember doing the, some auctions with Kim Finlay. We released 100 blocks uh, for Homes West just as the tunnel opened, and they all got snapped up, and I think they were, there were prices around 90000 yeah, for a, for a block in Rivervale. Yeah, jeez. And that was probably or fifteen years ago. So a lot more professionals coming in to the to the area these days. And I think a good thing to note about Belmont: how much has that Great Eastern Highway upgrade changed the area and the accessibility? The money's gone into Belmont Forum, and we're starting to see some of that development. Even though I'm not a massive fan of the policies that the City of Belmont have with their subdivision process, that town planning process, very restrictive in my opinion, but. Uh, we're starting to see a lot of renewal in the area as well. Oh, there's been a massive clean-out of the older-type homes that probably aren't really suitable for renovation. Fibros, brick veneers, the old state housing homes, um, probably not the greatest for renovation. And we've just had a total facelift for the suburb. And the apartments, obviously that was a bit of an overdone thing. Uh, but now we're getting back to basics, homes, townhouses, villas, which are a bit of a shortage of at the moment. We'll talk about development in a few minutes, but are people making money in Belmont at the moment or is it still a bit of a accumulation process and sitting in land banking for most of your clients? Um, obviously, everyone's had a hard time over the last few years, but we're starting to see a bit more confidence in the, out in the market. People are always craving big blocks uh, with a zoning not ready to do anything right now, but yeah, land banking's is the key. Well, the thing is, in that area, there's a lot of land to bank. There's still a lot of big properties, aren't there? Well, they're not They're not making any new blocks, no. <laughs> um, as I say at my home opens, but corner blocks are, are very, very sought after. And I think people are waiting a little bit too long. They should be pouncing right now and jumping on these sites because uh, they never go out of fashion. Well, let's talk about buying in Belmont now. Uh, I always like to go through the price points of what people can afford because there are many different levels of affordability in in Perth and many different types of of demand. Just straight down from your one by one, two by one, two by two apartments, all the way up to the really big uh, homes and development blocks. So can we get you to run us through all of those in between and what you would be expecting to sell them for in, in Belmont? Well, at the moment, you can get some great bargains. One by ones, the older styles at around 150. Uh, two by ones, older styles, 200,000. Uh, we've got uh, the recent uh, two by twos. They're starting to go at about 250 to 270. They were 400. Yes. Uh, then you get into the older villas at 300. I sold one on Monday at 300 grand. That was a 100 metre three by one with four car spaces. And then you step up to your front stratas at about 350 to 370. And your renovated uh, characters, I've got two on the market at the moment around 420. Yep. They were 500. Um, and then your duplex blocks are really starting at about 450. A retain and build, a good one's about 550. You step into a family home, a four by two on seven or 800 square meters. And they start about 650 and end at about 850. Now, your big development blocks that you'll be looking at putting townhouses on, I'm not sure many people are spending that money right now, but are they still fetching a premium? Um, there's still people looking at those uh, sites and um, doing the numbers now. Triple X block on a corner, 650, uh, just got one away. Uh, I've got a five home site, all street frontage for a million dollars. So 200 a site for a, for a home site 
is about right at the moment. Okay. And I think that's where we've got two points of value from my perspective. One is the two by two apartment, that the new one. That's nearly build price, that, that what you're paying for, right? And that's phenomenal in my opinion. If you're just looking in that market to try and get into a nice, fairly new two by two apartment, you know, just for lifestyle, just to get out of home maybe, that's an extremely good value in my opinion. And then those development blocks, if you can afford to bank them and wait for the prices to demonstrate themselves or take a bit of a punt and over that time of building in the next year, year and a half, you know, make an assumption of some growth too. For me, there's two price points there that show some real value in Belmont. Yeah, you could pick an eight unit site up for 450 at the moment, which um, with a rental value of around 380 a week. Um, they are great sites. Uh, they were going for 90 a site at one stage, which which would have cost you six to seven hundred thousand. So those uh, those sites have gone through the floor and are very realistic at the moment at four fifty. I guess we're segueing into development opportunities anyway. I, I want to get a bit deeper in that, especially with Belmont, because from my perspective, Belmont it has one of the hardest town planning schemes to understand. It has many, many clauses and sub clauses and, and rules around how you can and where you can and where you can't. Uh, do you find that this has worked for Belmont or do you find it's, it's stymied their process and progress in development? Um, it's allowed the professional developers um, basically a entry into the area uh, rather than the cowboys. It's highly policed uh, through the council and it just creates a, a, a better development um, streetscape. The only issue we've had, I think, is really with the parking mm. for apartments. Um, it's probably time that they you know, went for the two uh, visitors' bays for every four. Yeah, I agree. I think that's something that West Australian Planning Commission really needs to mandate uh, more strongly. And, you, and we're not only seeing that in Belmont. We see it through the city of Stirling, especially, where they had that period of allowing a massive increase in those Class 2 developments with apartments and that... If you're going to have a two-bedroom house, you know, or even a one-bedroom house, you're normally, and a lot of the time, going to have two people living there, and everyone has a car in Perth. So what you're seeing is these streets that are just packed with street parking. And I, and I think one of the smartest councils to address this, and the first councils to, to address this, were the city of Joondalup, who are now mandating that you need to build uh, verge uh, parking bays uh, in there, just even just for triplexes. Yeah, I think the apartment developers have really left Belmont at the moment and we're utilising the R2040 zoning and even the R2050-100 for homes and townhouses mm. and smaller villas. And they're not what they were meant for, were they? Not really, but uh, I've got a 10 uh, townhouse subdivision um, approved on Abernathy Road and it was probably... A couple of years ago, you would have said it was definitely an apartment development and it would have been good for 20 to 24. Mm. But 10 two storeys, uh, the way it's been designed at R50, actually R60, uh, is tight, but we've got three by twos with double parking. So inside that development, we've got 20 car bays. And that's, that's fixing a lot of those street parking problems. It, it certainly is. So I think you're right in that the complexity of the town and city of Belmont's planning scheme really does uh, work in the favour of those professional developers who have really got the experience and the time to get it right and not get caught out by some of these sub-clauses. But for me, it, it's, I'm, I'm someone who's always looking at the mum and dad investor and, and looking at 
ensuring that they're getting the opportunities as well. And it's very easy for them to get caught out with a couple of uh, policies, isn't it? Yeah, I think with this zoning, you do have to look outside the square and look for the next type of development that's going to be suitable for the market. Going back to that 10 townhouse development uh, in Abernathy, that's geared up for first home buyers with a price point of uh, 430000 for a for a brand new 3 by 2 double parking, which is very realistic in the current market. Not many people could afford to develop that though, could they? No, we've got a build price of 2.2 mm. and we've got a buy price at 1.2 for the land. So uh, yeah, you do need you do need big wheels um, to uh, put that development together. But the days of uh, the small time developer making a lot of money is pretty much come to an end right now. Yeah, and I think it does. You're right. It does need to have a considered understanding of what the market actually wants. And I guess it, more of a question to yourself of just because you could doesn't mean you should. Yeah, well, I generally look at a site and then I tailor it back to what I can actually sell the products for. There's no point building luxury homes at 750000 and crossing your fingers hoping they're going to sell. The market in Belmont is first home buyers, second home buyers to about five or 600 and investors. So probably designing a luxury development is definitely not going to be what is required. All right. To finish off today's chat, we always have the question, the median house price question. Devin Kelly, what is the median house price in Belmont? And if you had that money in your pocket today, no more, no less, what could you buy and what would you buy? Well, at 430000 it's uh, right on the first home buyer's free stamp duty threshold. Very true. And at four I'd definitely be buying a home on the biggest block I could find, I've got a fully renovated character home on 850 square metres right near the shops in Belmont and I'd be going for something like that. Devon, perfect example of someone who's thinking forward and not just trying to get the sexiest home for now but looking at their home as an investment as well which will give you opportunity for the future. Yeah, definitely. Land is... uh Land is the driver of uh, of all real estate prices. To go and buy a, a small unit or a or a flat or a villa at 4.30, I think, yeah, you are getting some uh, low-maintenance living. But if you're looking for capital growth in the next five years, you've definitely got to go for a home. Devin Kelly, thank you very much for coming in and talking about your home suburb, Belmont. I uh, hope to have you in again in the future with some uh, even better news. Thanks, Trent. Thanks for having us. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Perth Property Show. If you've only just joined the conversation, you can catch up by heading over to our website, perthpropertyshow.com.au, subscribing to the podcast or joining our Facebook page. Don't forget to tune in next Monday at 7am for more expert insights, local analysis and suburb spotlights. Happy hunting!